I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. The sermon notes in your bulletin will give you a direction as to where we're going to go and how quickly we're going to get there. So uh, you'll have some way of, of knowing what the morning's going to hold. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll really pick it up at verse 9, uh, part of last week's text, as we step into today's. Uh, as we do that, uh, I just want to remind you one little touch point with current things going on in, in our country some of you have been paying attention, and others of you have been ignoring on purpose the whole, uh, de- all the details with the Alex Murdoch trial. Uh, at least you're aware of it, even if you ignore it completely. But what's been interesting is how, how very public trials like that um, bring out uh, sometimes common themes to Christianity or things that are missing. Who's guilty? Who's not guilty? Was there a difference between being guilty legally and being morally guilty? Who's telling the truth? Uh, I was uh, reading an article, I I pulled it up on my phone here, um, where one of the jurors makes a comment that I thought, oh my goodness sakes, that is so interesting. What a connection with with the text. So one of the jurors uh, post-trial, he said this, I didn't see any true remorse or compassion, or anything. Noting that when Murdoch took the stand, he didn't cry. All he did was blow his nose. Now, what an interesting comment. But, but the, the nose part aside, in a, in, a, in a trial setting, here's a juror who's looking for something and trying to define what he's looking for. He's looking for an intangible. He's looking for real He's looking for genuine. He's looking for something. Now, today's text is about a similar thing because it's going to contrast worldly sorrow with godly sorrow, and they're not the same. And this matters to all of us, not only because all of us are in settings where relationally we're hurt by something someone says or does, But it's also important to us because sometimes we're the ones who are doing the hurting. And how does change take place? And what what do we long for in our own hearts? And what do we look for in others that that, that speaks of that genuineness? So so all of these things the Bible addresses, not like like a counseling manual with little bullet points. That isn't the point. This is a letter. 2 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church. But he's talking about this, very, very real, very contemporary, the change issues, what's going on in our hearts. So we want to hear God's word today, speak to these things. Uh, Again, the sermon notes will give you some indication of where we're going. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to to read the text and and talk about several related elements. As I use the word grief today, I just, I want you to know, uh, I'm not using the term grief to speak of that loss when we say goodbye to a loved one. We just had a memorial service yesterday. The room was filled with people, grieving people. When we're using the term today, godly grief, we're talking about not that, that kind of grief, but the grief that comes from injury or hurt or things like that, okay? Let me, let me pray for us. Would you join me here, please? Our Father, how good it is to open the word of God together. Uh, those present in the room, those joining us on, on our live stream, Uh, So good uh, to be together this morning. And 
to, to hear the word of God speak about things that are so substantive and so real to, to the, the, the things we face every day. Your word is always contemporary. Your word is always relevant. But these things are often on our minds. Would you help us today to hear your word, to love it, and to respond in faith? Change us, our Father. And, and as well, I pray for those who've come today with all kinds of other things going on, uh, maybe other types of difficulty or problem, maybe sorting through issues of faith, even wondering if you're really there. Our Father, would you use the word of God by the power of the spirit of God to speak to us, maybe even in areas that the text doesn't address, but you do your work. We are open for you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Corinthians 7, and again, I'm going to start at verse 9, part of last week's text, and use it again, but I think it's a good uh, segue to where we're going this morning. Let's hear God's word then. 2 Corinthians 7, starting verse 9. Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved by his previous comments and so on, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now, a couple of things just to to wrap our minds around this. Again, you remember perhaps that that this is the second letter in our Bibles that Paul writes to the same church, uh, the church at Corinth. We said before, uh, scholars believe there may have been as many as four different letters. We have these two. The church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. That's 1 Corinthians. A lot of things were dealt with. But even here in 2 Corinthians, this letter, uh, Paul is addressing what we would call an anti-Paul faction. There were a number of people after he'd been there and then left who were saying, yeah, what's he all about? I don't think he knows everything. He's not really, you know, necessarily speaking for God. And so there was, a, there was this faction rising up in the church that was apparently had a leader. I think that's the person referred to in verse 12, kind of the, the flag bearer, so to speak, of the anti-Paul crowd. And there were people following along. There was a crowd who were saying, Paul, you know what? I mean, you said you speak for God, but yeah, maybe not. And who, I'm not really sure he knows what he's talking about and all kinds of things. So Paul is addressing this and has been all the way through this letter, as you recall, including just right in last week's text, verse two, make room in your hearts. He's pleading with them. And by the way, even today's text, it it sounds like things are resolved. Uh, There's more to talk about. So 
don't think that today's text lands all the controversy. There's, there's more to be addressed in the chapters ahead. But, but for today, I want us to wrap our arms around these three elements there in front of you, this business of godly grief versus worldly sorrow, and just kind of drill down into what's going on here. And it's, it's very interesting to see how it's, it's so similar, because we're just people. They're a bunch of people, and we're a bunch of people, separated by a couple thousand years. But the details are still very, very similar. So my first heading then is, is pretty simple from verses 9 and 10. Godly grief is more than feeling sorry. Okay? You want to brace yourself here? You want to think about this together? Godly grief is about more than feeling sorry. Uh, verse, verse 9, of course, we noted last week, Paul says you were grieved into repenting, and he's drawing a difference between grief and repentance. So you could be grieved and not repent. He says you were grieved into repenting. You felt godly grief. So he's going to use godly grief as a term for for what we would say say is repenting. So verse 9 says the word repenting. Verse 10, repentance, uh, very similar, of course. But, But grieved and repenting, he's drawing a difference between them. I have in your sermon notes here this observation that I know you know is true, not only because you have seen this in other people, but because in your most honest moments, you have experienced this. Okay, it's humanity, it's us, folks. So grief behaviors, uh, worldly grief and godly grief, both can involve, I'm calling grief behaviors. That would be tears, words of regret, shame, retractions, promises of change, even apologies or repeated apologies. I am so sorry. I never should have said, I can't believe those words came out of my mouth, even though I thought, thought them. But I, I, I and shame, I, I'm so embarrassed. Now, the text is not saying, nor am I, that those things are bad things. That'd be a great place to start. But I think what Paul is saying is, those things alone don't indicate lasting and substantive, I'm going to call it heart change, to use a term we used last week. Those things can take place, good as they are, and not bring lasting change. Have you ever seen this? Wow. Have you ever done this? Now, if you're a parent, surely you've seen this. This is, the, this is the moment, uh, five sisters, right? This is me. I was raised with five sisters. Then there was me, the, you know, the henpecked brother, the poor guy. I know your sympathy is just overwhelming at times. Uh, four older sisters, my goodness sakes, the grief that I, I mean, I'm innocent. Um, come on, people, work with me here. No, but, but you know, things take place. And a parent says, now you say you're sorry, and you repent deeply. No, of course not. You know, you know, you got your fingers behind your back or your eyes are crossed or you're whatever. You're going, okay, sorry. The other person goes, yeah, whatever. And you go, okay, it's solved. Uh, and it isn't. And we laugh because those are things kids do because they're not very good at repenting, are they? So are you, or do you do the same thing? 
Okay, sorry. Look, look, I'm so sorry. How many times have you apologized? Really? And on the inside, maybe subconsciously, there was a quick vow not to get caught saying the same thing again. Never say that out loud again. But I still think... Huh, interesting, the grief behaviors. And, you know, it's so interesting, the very thing that we long for as parents, which is true heart change, gospel change, the real thing, the, the change inside that says, oh, I'm, it's not just that I'm sorry, wow, I, I see that I really hurt you, and that was so wrong, and I, I, am, I am so profoundly sorry. And I'm going to ask God's help not to go there again. We long for that in other people. I'm not so sure we long for it in ourselves. That right there, what I just pressed on, that's, I think, what Paul is is working at here in the text. He says, you were grieved into repenting. In other words, I saw the real thing happening. I saw heart change. I saw something of substance. I saw the real thing. That's, That's what he's responding to in the text. You were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief. And, and, and wow, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation, redemption, forgiveness, good things without regret. Now, he says here, I'm looking at verse 10, whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't think he means here necessarily physical death, but that death and dying process. If you, if you think about this in the, some of the, 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 the more evident situations involving things like addiction, you can see where it involves physical death as well, ultimately, if there's no, if there's no real change. And those of us who are connected with people who struggle with those kinds of things, addictive behavior that are really, really bad, that physically and so on, um, some of us understand this process. If you don't change this, it's going to kill you. It will. Some of us, I'm confident, maybe even struggle with that today, whether other people know it or not. I think that's what the text, I mean, it's, it's real life. Paul isn't making this up. He's saying this is, this is the way humanity is. Now, if you look at my second bullet point, just to press on this a bit. Yeah, worldly grief produces death. That is no real change ultimately takes place. The focus of, of worldly grief ultimately is the self. This is dissecting something. It's dissecting my heart and yours. So, so let, it, let it happen. We, ex- we may experience shame. At, at being caught, we don't get what we want, and that irritates us profoundly. Our plans are ruined. We're embarrassed. We may feel sorry, yes, but very often the sorrow is focused on ourselves. And in a moment of abject honesty, you might admit that about yourself. The reason I'm so mad is, is that. that those are hard things to admit, aren't they? I mean, that's stepping into adulthood really quickly, (laughs) no matter how old you are. The reason I am upset is, what? Is it it because I did or said what I did or said? Or is it because I'm really embarrassed because now somebody heard or saw I was exposed? This This kind of worldly sorrow that Paul defines, I think is characterized that way. I didn't get what I wanted. My plans are ruined. Um, Wow. So I'm saying under this first heading, I think this is verses 9 and 10, I think this is the main point of all that follows. Okay, if if I grabbed a thesis statement, I think this is it. And all the verses that follow support it. Godly grief is more than feeling sorry. 
So it presses on then. Now, coming to then to verse, I'm going to say verse 10, but down toward verse 12 as well, godly grief results in change and new desires. So we're going to see characteristics here of godly grief, characteristics of repentance, to use that biblical term. Things that it, it doesn't come alone, and it's not just about words. So Paul, again, he's not trying to give a bullet point list, like here they are clinically, here are seven things or six things. No, he's trying to paint a picture. It's kind of like this. This is what it looks like. For, so he says in verse, verse 11, we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced. He's going to define some things. Again, he's painting a picture. We, we, uh, the way we tend to think, we're looking for bullet point lists. Eastern minds, people in, in Bible times, they were thinking in pictures. They're painting a picture here. It's like this, earnestness. It's produced in you. You're, you're sobered up here. You're not fooling around. No jokes today. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. This crowd that's been following uh, this, the, the anti-Paul movement. He says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. How did we get suckered into that? What were we thinking? What fear. What fear of the consequence. Or what fear of shame to the name of Christ. What fear uh, this could produce. What longing. Longing for change. What zeal to pursue that change. What punishment. The idea here is, is a longing for justice. I think it's not just about somebody getting whooped. It's, it's a longing to see justice done. At every point, he says, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. That is, this, this crowd following uh, the wrong folks, he says, you, you, you've turned around. You're heading the other direction. Thank you for that. And I can see it in how you're, you're posturing yourself. There's substantive change. Now, under this heading, then, I'm giving you some, some things to think about. Um, my first bullet point, then, godly grief moves beyond immediate regret into actual repentance, again, to draw the difference between the two. Paul's describing the fruit of repentance, the fruit of the real thing. And he, he's painting the picture saying, sincere efforts to change, desire to repair what's broken, sadness at the sin, not just at being caught. And then notice the emphasis here, continued efforts to pursue new habits and persistence in this new direction. And right now, your, your mind is percolating over all kinds of things. Maybe for somebody you know and love. Maybe for you. Continued efforts to pursue new habits, persistence in this new direction. You mean I can't just be sorry once and be done? Is that the way you've ever had it happen? Have you ever changed in a substantive way just because one day you said, boy, that was a bad idea and you just never did it again? Really? I'd like some of that juice because uh, I'm not sure I have that for breakfast in the morning. Wow, no, real substantive change isn't quite like that. But he's describing the, the fruit of repentance that it's, it's a turning, and, and please understand, it's a turning from and a turning to. Sometimes people think of repentance as turning from, and that's correct, but that's half of it. You're turning to something. So if you're turning away from, what are you turning to? So, so new behaviors, new affections, new, new things in the heart. And if all you're doing is turning away from something, in, repentance is incomplete. What, what have you turned to? See, all the time in the Bible, repentance is turning away and to. Away and to. Away from those things and toward Christ, toward new behaviors. So I'm saying godly grief results in change and new desires. Go to the other side of the page. I want to press on the definition issue for just a couple of moments here. I say definitions matter. I want to talk about the term repentance for a moment as it's used here and elsewhere in the Bible. 
Repentance is more than an event or an expression of intent. Okay? I'd like you to think about this, please. Repentance is more than a moment. Now, sometimes the word repent or repentance is used in some settings. I'm thinking of our brother Odie in, in a Moldovan setting. The Slavic countries, especially Pastor Kevin was, was chatting with me about this. In, in, a, in a Russian context, at least, the term repent is used to, to speak of someone coming to Christ for the, for the first time. We would say that person has come to Christ or they've trusted Christ as their savior. And for the same event, in a Russian setting, someone would say they repented, he or she repented. That's what they meant, is they are coming to faith in Christ. So-and-so's over there repenting. You'd say, wonderful, they're coming to faith in Christ. Now, that's, I'm not picking on that. I'm saying that could be one use of the word. Uh, in a biblical sense, repentance is more than a moment, though. Uh, it, it involves substantive change. And, I, I, and I'm, again, you see what I'm doing here. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, worked to talk about this in his 95 Theses. Now, a couple years ago, 2017, as we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we talked about some of these things. Martin Luther, of course, a German guy, and you're familiar with the pluses and minuses of him, I'm sure, as we've talked about him over the years. But, of course, he, in nailing his 95 Theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, that was kind of one of the sparks that blow up the whole Protestant Reformation, He was talking about this. He wasn't trying to blow up the place. He really wasn't in any sense. He was saying, could we talk about these things? And he listed 95 of them. You can Google it if you like and read all 95. I would just really encourage you to read the first two and perhaps call it good because there's a lot of historical context. If you don't have that, you're going to be at about number 65 and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've got some historical context. I still don't know what he's talking about. But but, uh, number one and number two, I'm pretty sure I know. So uh, his, the, the first of those theses, and again, he's, he's pressing on issues that he saw in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, okay? It's selling of indulgences, which was kind of like permission to sin, or if you pay enough money, you can get forgiven. Think about that. You want to get forgiven by God? No problem. Attach a 20. Well, oh, hold on. How badly did you sin? Maybe it'll take a 50, and then we can work on forgiveness. Can you see any problems with this kind of a system? Uh, wow, I'll pray for you and get you some forgiveness, but... You know, I'm a busy guy. Um, make it worth my time. Yeah, all kinds of problems with this. But he was pressing on this. First, first thesis, number one. It's something like this. When our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of the Christian should be one of repentance. There, that's, that's pretty close to the first. When our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole life of a believer should be one of repentance. In other words, Christian, This business of repenting isn't just something you do once, but let's face it, all the time, huh? Because there are things to turn from and turn to, and buddy, let me tell you, you never outgrow this, do you? I don't care how old you are, how long you've been hanging out at church, or how big a Bible you carry, there are things to turn from and turn to. Oh, sure, you might clear off some of the obvious ones off your plate in some earlier days and say, now I'm I'm looking pretty good now. Snap. And the Lord sees the heart. And there's still more to repent of and more to turn to. And that's what Luther was saying. For a Christian, you you never get to the place where you say, yeah, I remember repenting Ah, like 38 years ago. 38 years? Holy smoke. You're way overdue. Huh? 38 minutes? 
getting closer. But a posture of the heart that says, Lord, I'm, I'm wanting to turn to you again. I'm needing to turn to you again. My heart is deceitful above all things. It keeps turning back this way. And I need to reposture myself. I need to reorient myself back to you. Back to you. So this turning, it shouldn't be an unfamiliar process to any of us. Because our hearts and the world system, all kinds of things, constantly turn us away. So repentance is turning back again and again toward Christ, toward Christ and away from those other things. So that's really what Luther was about. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire Christian life should be one of repentance, of continually reposturing ourselves toward the Lord. Uh, His second thesis has to do with my next bullet point. Repentance is not the same as penance. And again, writing in a historical setting, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the term penance, some of you are familiar with that term because you were raised with similar thoughts. Penance, the idea of through self-discipline or some gift, you're going to make up for it. Uh, Gary Chapman, of course, along with another writer, have uh, some book dealing with issues of forgiveness. And they, in that book, they talk about how for some people, um, one of their forgiveness languages is giving gifts. I don't want to pick on anybody if that's necessarily your gift, but uh, like the way you think about forgiveness, I need to make up for it. Um, But let me tell you something. When there's severe offense and you bring them a plate of brownies, how does that go? Yeah, typically not well. Some terrible things take place. And a husband brings his wife flowers. Okay, that's nice. Look, thanks for the flowers, but, but it's not the flowers. I don't need any flowers. You know what I need? You see where this is going? So penance, penance is that, is what we described here, self-punishment or self-discipline or, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And Martin Luther was just saying, no, repentance isn't the same as I'm going to make it up to you. It's it's not, that's not it. That's not it. These are all things that sometimes our hearts try to make up for something. If you look at my my next bullet point here, I'm, I'm pressing on this issue, Okay. So, so Paul's going to refer to the specific situation, verse 12, of this, this ringleader and so on who's taking him the wrong direction and people following that person. He's saying, I wasn't, I'm not writing to you just about that one. That's not the point. Nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. That would be Paul and his, his friends, apostolic leaders. But he says, in order that you, your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. In other words, I'm after the heart. I'm after the heart of this congregation And if you see the way I wrote this here, um, many times the problem isn't the real problem. The problem reveals the heart. And I just bet you that in about, you know, 10 seconds, if you thought about that, you could think of real life situations where the, the, the problem isn't the real issue. The words that were said aren't the real issue. It's the heart from which they were spoken. Or that action, the fact that you forgot this or didn't do that or said this or went there or that. Yeah, that's a problem. But it's really indicative of the big problem. It's the tip of the iceberg. And we're pressing on heart, see? Heart issues, heart affections. It's just so interesting to me how the Bible is so uh, real about the human condition. This is us. So, So verses 9 and 10, godly grief is more than feeling sorry. It is. And then he begins to describe, trying to paint a picture 
of repentance and it, the, the, what it looks like and the continued efforts and the persistence in the new direction and a heart change, heart change, heart change, we said last week, heart change. And it's also, we said last week, hard change. We said both of those last week. Okay. Boy, verses 13 to 16 then, this third movement in the text. Godly grief brings joy and it removes shame. So repentance, and again, I'm using the term godly grief for that, to speak of that substantive work of God in our hearts. Godly grief produces or brings joy and removes shame. Certainly, Paul says, verse 13, therefore we're comforted. It's going to come from two, two different sources, not only hearing of real change in the, the, the church family there at Corinth, but also because he sees the impact on Titus. So there's joy as well. Besides your own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. His spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Paul's grateful to hear the change. He's grateful that Titus has, has shown up. Paul says, whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. And of course, Paul's writing to these folks in a, what we would call an honor-shame society. Maybe you're familiar with what that's all about. Honor and shame is a bigger deal in a lot of parts of the world, more so than it is here. Our world, in the U.S., we tend to say, oh, who cares what they think? And much of the rest of the world says, yeah, I do care what they think. So honor, shame, honor, shame, really a bigger deal almost everywhere but here, uh, if I may say. And Paul, certainly living in that kind of a society, I wasn't put to shame, he says. I, I, I boasted about you. I said, I'm confident it's going to go well, Titus. And, and then it did. And Paul says, I, I wasn't shamed because I said I thought you'd be doing okay and you really were not. So he, he's, he's happy about that. Now, on your, your sermon notes here, I put Paul's comforted, of course, by the godly grief exhibited by the Corinthians, and, and certainly about Titus. I want to say another word about Titus, okay? This is an aside, but it's not really. I think it's, it's, it's dealing with the text. And you'll understand, I often try to draw a difference between what's really obvious in the text and what Jay Mosser thinks, okay? So I'm going to go to a Jay Mosser thinks moment. So don't take this to the bank. Don't put any money on it on the office pool. But I'm just going to give you something that I think, at least I wonder about, okay? So I'm going to go back here to 1 Corinthians 16 for just a moment. As you read these texts and mull them over, uh, you, you can decide what you think too. But I'll tell you what I think. You come back to 1 Corinthians 16, which is, again, you know, the messier of the letters. Uh, not that this one isn't, but this is kind of over the top. 1 Corinthians, a lot of stuff going on. Paul's going to talk about two of his guys. Okay? He's got people working with him. Titus, of course, is a Gentile, uh, young pastor-type guy, and that's, that's showing up in 2 Corinthians. But, but here in 1 Corinthians, you've got Timothy. Okay, now, I'm going to read 10, 11, and then, and then down into verse 12. Watch what's going on here with some of Titus, or Paul's, Paul's friends. So Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord. Translation, hey guys, I'm gonna send Timothy. He's a young, uh, wet behind the ears, young pastor. Please be nice to him. Okay, please. He goes on. He's doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him, because you might. Uh, help him on his way in peace. He keeps saying this. Be nice. Help the young guy. Send him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. Please give him back. Don't, don't eat him up. I'm expecting him with the brothers. I, I read in that, hey, um, I'm going to send Timothy. <clears throat> I, don't him to, I don't want him to have such a miserable time with you that he quits ministry. They're, they're a piece of work. 
the church at Corinth. I'm going to send you one of my young guys. Now, the next verse reinforces what I think I'm reading here. Okay? Verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, another, another one of Paul's friends, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. What do you read there? The apostle Paul says, Paulus, please go. And tied, or Paulus is saying, ain't a chance. What's going on here? Does he have a cold? You know, I don't think so. Paul is leveraging him. I'm strongly urging him, he says. I strongly urge him. It was not at all his will to come. He will come when he has the opportunity. Why doesn't Paul want to go to, to, to Corinth? And why is Paul taking time to say, be nice to Timothy? Well, then I come to 2 Corinthians, and he says, I've sent Titus, poor kid, I sent Titus with this stern letter, and then he didn't come back. Remember, Titus, uh, Paul's pacing back and forth, maybe in Philippi, going, where's Titus? Where's Titus? What have they done to Titus? Maybe he took another boat and went the other direction, back to his mother's house. I don't know. And then Titus shows up, and he goes, oh, Titus, I'm telling you, it's so good to see you. <laughs> you came back. And Titus says, they responded to what you wrote and, and repented in a good way. I could see evident results. And Paul goes, oh my goodness sakes, thank you, Lord. Now, maybe I've overblown that. I hope not too much. But I just, I just read 1 Corinthians 16 as you put to, these two letters together. And I, I, I find myself wondering if, as Paul sends his folks there, if he's concerned about their, their, their well-being. Churches can be messy places. Do I need to state the obvious? I know I'm among friends on this. I, I know this because, you know, um, I've been around at this for a while, 22 years here almost, and 20 years before that. So in 42 years, yeah, I've seen wonderful, wonderful times in church families, the ones I've been a part of and all those around. I've also seen really, really awful times. And anymore, when someone says to me, I was in such and such a church, and you know, I just don't know if I want to go to church anymore, I, I usually don't yell at them. Now I want to see them come back somewhere into fellowship. But actually, I do understand more than you might think that churches can be messy places. Now, I, I, I know that. Have that. I have that T-shirt. So Paul, so Paul is happy when Titus comes back. He saw real change. He saw you all as a congregation respond to what I wrote, Paul would say. And I saw the real thing happen. And I couldn't be happier. So if you look at the part called responding to God's word, in a moment we're going to receive communion is that kind of that final act of response as well. And I just, I just touch on these elements very, very briefly. Uh, is there such a thing as false guilt? Of course. Of course there is. Don't let people foist false guilt on you. It's the kind of thing that people try to put on you when, when someone says, you know what the problem here is? Uh, we wouldn't have had this problem if you hadn't made me so mad. That's making you responsible for someone else's sin or trying. You know, if you would just behave better, then this wouldn't happen. You know, when the place blows up, and this is all because you. You, you just don't, you know. Okay, don't, 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 let, don't, don't be carrying other people's guilt. Uh, then, my, again, a lot can be said on that one. Oh, my. Godly grief results in true repentance before God. God is the main audience here, not other people. 
Sometimes there's an effort to, 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 to prove to other people that there's been repentance, which ends up being all about us again. And it, it, the main audience here is God. So don't forget that, please. Godly grief results in true repentance. And I, I very much believe this. And again, you could, we could say a lot about this. For true heart change to take place, we need the work of God. You do. And so do I. And so it is right if you find yourself knocking around in your own heart with, with lighter, uh, worldly sorrow and saying, God, I just don't feel it. You know what? I, man, pray and ask God to change your heart. Ask for his help. Do it. Ask God to change your heart, to bring true repentance to you. That's a worthy prayer for a child of God. Okay? Wow. I'm in 1 Corinthians 11, and you might go there too. I'll make a comment on it in a moment. But as, as, as we head toward communion, this is a moment for examination, as we'll see. I want to pray and ask God just to help us as we absorb all this, and then I'll say a word about how we receive communion here, and then we'll be done for the morning. But pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you speak so directly to the issues of life. I don't just mean other people, but us, each of us, because we struggle with things, and we are so tempted to to just produce the shallow stuff and get on with it. And what you're after again and again is, is, is the heart, the affections, the deep things of who we are before you. Father, just, just help us not to be satisfied with the surface stuff, be better mannered, Oh, Father, we need you. We need you. Thank you that we can remember Christ, whose death on the cross paid for our sin, and and yet today grants us access day by day into your presence and the help of the Spirit of God. Thank you for this. We honor him now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, if you know Christ as your Savior, we welcome you to share communion with us. Communion is more than just a little church ritual. It's a remembering of what Jesus did. So there's a little cracker and a cup of juice, and both of those are intended to point us to what Jesus did. The cracker is is just about saying, remember Jesus' body that was bruised, wounded, beaten, nailed to a cross. And the little cup of juice is calling us to remember his blood shed for us when he died in our place on Calvary's cross. We forget all the time. And so in the New Testament, we're told again and again to come and remember again and again and again, Jesus died in your place. To remember his body broken and his blood shed. 1 Corinthians 11, there's a text, and I've given you the reference there to it. It's, it's, it's calling us at a time of remembering Christ in communion to examine your heart. Now, it doesn't just mean now, in two minutes, but to live an examined life, a reminder, this is a reminder to you, to live an examined life before the Lord. Is there something God wants to talk to you about? Are you listening? Are you listening? I hope so. And let today be a reminder of that. Uh, As we receive communion, we invite you to come. If you're in these two sections down the middle aisle, uh, please feel free to serve someone near you, especially if there is somebody near you, mobility impaired, who would appreciate. Uh, You want to take both cups, little crackers on the bottom, and then if you just file your way back there and find your seat again on the sides, if you come up the aisle this way, 
to those stations and then back down these aisles. And again, serve a family member or friend who's near you or someone who would appreciate the help. Once you bring those elements back, I'll say just a word and we'll remember Jesus together. Okay? You know how to do this. Please come. Thank you so much. I love that song. Christ is our righteousness. I have none. Christ is your righteousness. You have none. This text in front of us, 1 Corinthians 11, says whoever eats the bread and drinks the body of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat. Come then, come. Examine himself and come. Eat of the bread, drink of the cup. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's not an examine yourself and don't come. It's an examine yourself and do come. Christ is the, he is the one who is, sits on the throne of mercy, the throne of grace. Examine yourself and come and remember Jesus. The little cracker points us to his body broken for us. As we eat this, we say thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Let's remember him together. And likewise, the cup points us to the blood of Christ shed for us. Let's remember him together. I'd like to pray for us as we head out to the week uh, involved with whatever those things are that God knows are coming our way. Stand with me, please. Father, we thank you today for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you that you don't stand at heaven's gate with your arms crossed. Thank you that you, because of Jesus, stand with arms wide open. Come, come to me. Thank you for this. I pray that as we head into this week that you'd give us grace for whatever comes our way as we follow you into it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.